I'm Jessica, and this is Homecoming, finding yourself in life's little moments. Hi, dear listener. Just to say that I, after having posted my last podcast about my experiences in marriage, one of the most extraordinary things, I don't think I actually anticipated this. I don't, I think I posted that with so much fear and trepidation that what actually happened was not something that had been in my consciousness, in my anticipation. But when I posted this previous podcast about the traumatic experiences that I that I had in marriage and then put it up on Facebook I got the most incredible ex- um, responses from women and those responses said things like you know <laughs> you go girl <laughs> they said all sorts of incredible things you know I've longed for this kind of transparency in my own life I've had the same experience I'm going to just quote some of them and what I began to realize was how much has not been how much is there in the background in the lives I'd say so I'm just going to say it straight out in this case of women now it's true for men and that I think is going to be another podcast of mine I'm not a man obviously but this is what has happened this is what is unfolding this is why I have to respond to it you know and I I woke up this morning and I thought what the heck is going on in this world you know what's really going on Um, when Jesus said the truth will set us free the process of the truth setting us free isn't something that I've ever actually experienced in such a um, profound and dramatic and um, real way as as this so I posted that podcast that podcast just a couple of days ago and um, and then women mostly began to respond from their own experience and again you know I will read some of those responses now to you now I never thought of myself as someone who could relate, frankly, to the women's, quote-unquote, women's liberation movement. I I grew up in the 60s and 70s. That was the beginning of, you know, very real. um, That was when a lot of this was really going on, when women were becoming, you know, um, liberated, quote unquote, when things were happening that were allowing them to become, you know, free, freer, free, uh, say in the United States where I'm from, um, you know, from back in the 50s and the 40s and the 30s and before that and that and that, you know, women were beginning to step out into their own lives. And that took many forms, you know, it took the forms of, 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 jobs and of independence, financial independence. Um, It used to be that, I remember when my mom told me that it used to be that a woman couldn't have her own bank account. She had to have a bank account with a man, with her husband, and could not have her own bank account. So, I mean, this is just one of the small things that now, you know, in 2019, women, especially in the Western world, you know, I would say simply can't conceive would ever have been the case or couldn't possibly conceive of being limited by. So anyway, I never really could relate to that movement, even though I was born 
um, and raised during the time when it was coming to light. And the reason was because in myself, I was raised by um, in uh, by women. Okay, I was raised essentially by women. My grandmother also, my grandmother who came to the United States in 1918 uh, as an 18-year-old woman speaking almost no English, landed on Ellis Island in New York, came to the United States, to New York from Russia. A, she was already with her husband-to-be at that time, or her husband, I don't know if she was already married at that time, but it wasn't something that actually, I think, probably figured into her life in the same way that it did for many immigrant women, and her story is quite extraordinary. She um, came to this country on a visa given to her by a man named Henry Morgenthau, okay, and he was the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, that is uh, Constantinople, was the capital of that, what's now Turkey. And she came down escaping the atrocities of of Russian life, life in Russia. Uh, she was Jewish, and, you know, there was the, the awful pogroms and the awful um, uh, violence and, you know, that was going on systematically um, against Jews in in Russia, in Eastern Europe, at that time, so she came out of out of Russia with with my grandfather or to be grandfather, and went down to um, escape. You know, traveled down to Constantinople, and in Constantinople, she was there for a period of time and working, uh, and she began to do what she was able to do, which was to sew clothes. So my grandmother was a seamstress. And by the age of 18, she was good enough to be doing that for other people. So she, by herself, I mean, this is the story, this is how it went, is that she sewed um, the sort of costume for Henry Morgenthau, who was going to be going to a a sort of costume ball. And back in the day, you can imagine the kind of colonial style uh, life that the um, people of means and and so on lived in places like India and the Ottoman Ottoman Empire and a, a person like Henry Morgenthau um, back then uh, as the ambassador to Constant you know to to the Ottoman Empire would have the life he would have led would have been one of pomp and circumstance and my grandmother sewed for him a fancy dress costume. So that occurred somewhere around 1917, and he was so impressed with her skills that he gave her a visa there to America, and he said, you go and you make your life in America because you're gifted. So my grandmother, with my grandfather, although it's always seemed somewhat I'll tell you that and tell you more about this another time. But my grand grandmother came to the United States in 1918 and began a costume business. And she worked for a very short period of time for somebody else. And then in the early 1920s, stepped out onto her own, a little Russian woman, barely kind of, you know, barely 25. I mean, she was probably less than 25 in New York City, learning English she could never she never actually ended up mastering English uh, 
in her life even to the end. So, but it didn't stop her. It did not stop her. And she established what would end up becoming one of the most successful and um, and uh, um, famous, you know, theatrical costume businesses of the 20th century. So as time went on, she ended up making the first um, costumes for the Radio City Rockettes and their floor show. She she was really excellent at making and imaginative at making um, these wonderful sort of costumes with feather headdresses and sequined, um, sequined, you know, amazing hand beaded um, costumes and so on. And uh, um, I mean, you can tell that I'm just, you know, I'm simply sitting down, having just woken up, and I'm making this podcast. So. I, I, I'm sorry for all the ums and the ahs, but I'm thinking this out as I'm telling you. So she was making, she made the first costumes for the Radio City Ar- Radio City Rockettes for the opening of Radio City Music Hall in New York in 1932. Those were her costumes. She went on to make costumes for people like um, Tallulah Bankhead, for, um, for the floor shows in Las Vegas in the 30s and 40s, and... Um, you know, for she met people like Sammy Davis Jr., you know, Elvis Presley. She was wa- walking around in the midst of people like that and making the costumes that people who went to Las Vegas would see for the Cotton Club in Harlem in New York. She made Duke Ellington's suits. She made, um, you know, I just, you know, uh, later she made Liza Minnelli's gowns. You know, she made Lena Horne, who just passed at the age of 92. I have a photo of I had a photo of her. My mom had a photo of my grandmother fitting Lena Horn in the early 1950s, and this beautiful, beautiful woman with my grandmother sitting with pins stuck in her mouth, you know, fitting the the costume for Lena Horn, her gown, you know, back in the early 1950s. My grandmother was driven, and she worked famously like 18-hour days. She didn't make a very good mother for that reason, so that's a whole other story. However, she became extremely well-known for her incredible hand-beaded, hand-designed. You know, she, she would cut freehand. She would cut the fabric freehand. She wouldn't use the, you know, the sort of paper forms and so on. You know, she looked at the model. She looked at the person. She looked at the, the actor or actress or, you know, or the... Um, you know, the, the showgirls, the dance girls, and so on. And she would cut by sight on the fabric, by sight, looking at their figures and going, okay, this is how this is going to fit this person, and it would always work. She was extraordinary. She was interviewed by the New York Times in 1952 or three, and they asked her, you know, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you do it? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you hold you know, how do you do what you do? And she said, you know, it's it's not in my mind. And then she pointed to her heart. She said, it's in here. It's in my heart. That's how I know how to do what I do. That was my grandmother. Madame Bertha was her name. And she was one of the three top theatrical costumers of the 1900s, you know, mid to early to mid-1900s. She went out with sort of, you know, in the 70s and early 80s when things were changing and she was already getting into be, you know, herself, you know, in her late 70s and 80s. But she was incredible. So that was my grandmother, and she loved me. And amazingly, I look like her. You know, I look like her. I have her blue eyes. I have her nose. I have her mouth. You know, I have her hair. 
you know, are there things that skipped it, you know, genetically skipped a generation from her and ended up with me. So that was my grandmother, and um, that's the reason why I could never really relate to the women's liberation movement, because my grandmother was liberated. She was liberated. She was herself, you know, she did this incredible thing on her own from scratch in America, in New York, in the late teens, early 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and nothing was going to stop her could hardly ever speak a word. I mean, she spoke English fine, you know, she spoke English, but she never got it really, you know, not really. Um, she'd always say vegetable, the word vegetable. She'd always pronounce it vegetable. And because she always pronounced it vegetable, I always got that word right on spelling bees when I was growing up in school because my grandmother pronounced it like it's spelled, vegetable. So anyway, um, that was my grandmother. And then she had one daughter, my mother. And uh, and my mother was um, raised in that environment. She, you know, met all those people. She was, you know, very uh, incredibly gifted pianist, um, really smart person, really, really smart, and got her, P- ended up getting her PhD in the late 1960s, doing research, original research on a man named Jean Piaget, who was a um, developmental psychologist and philosopher. And she took Jean Piaget's work and retranslated it from the French, because he was Swiss, and, uh, and basically said, guys, you know, you don't get it. You know, you, you know, all the people who were sort of looking at his work, she was saying, you know, you, you, you actually don't get it. He's been mistranslated, and this is actually what he's saying. And she compared his work and illuminated his work through her own study of nothing else but relativistic physics. Okay, so this is my mom. All right, she's doing this original research. And she is um, writing about it. And kind of by that time, you know, I was born and, uh, and growing up. And my dad had left when I was, you know, when I was six, less than six. But my mom, so just to go back, you know, my mom was doing this incredible, incredible work. And she had studied herself piano with an amazing, amazing man named Leopold Mittman, who had come out of Poland before the war, Jewish, um, as a result escaped the Holocaust and began to teach piano in New York in the you know late 30s, 40s, 50s. He won the Chopin competition in 1915. And the um, newspapers at the time said that nobody could play Chopin better than Leopold Mittman. The only person who could play Chopin better than Leopold Mittman was Chopin. And he won that competition in 1915. Incredibly beautiful musician from everything my mom has told me. And my mom studied with him. Why? Because my grandmother, who was, you know, working and so on, and knew all sorts of people in New York at that time, knew the mother of Isaac Stern, you know, one of the world's most famous violinists, Isaac Stern. And so she asked Mrs. Stern, Isaac Stern's mother, who he would, she would recommend to teach um, piano to her daughter, my mother. And she said Leopold Mittman, because Leopold Mittman was Isaac Stern's accompanist. And so my mother began piano studies with Leopold Mittman, and that legacy, which is the subject of a whole other podcast I can make, um, is what has come down to me through my mother. 
So my mom got her Ph.D. in the late 1960s, very unusual for a woman at that time, but she did. My grandmother was making costumes for people like Liza Minnelli, and I was growing up in their midst. So I never thought about women's liberation, you know. My, my, my mom and my grandmother were, in a very fundamental sense, already liberated. They were self-liberated. They were doing what they were doing, and that's one way of seeing it, you know, but I never could really relate to women's liberation. So when I posted this podcast then, you know, I would say, right, 50 years after my mother got her PhD um, in New York, you know, doing her original research on Jean Piaget, I didn't anticipate the... um, I didn't anticipate the response I was going to get. I didn't sense what would come from the women who would listen to my podcast. All I knew, okay, and this is where it starts to get real, you know, from the point of view of of what we women are really struggling with. All I knew is that I had been in a marriage that a situation that I depended on, you know, even though I was really, in many ways, a liberated person, I was living an unliberated life. Why was I living an unliberated life? Why are so many women in this world living an unliberated life? Why did I think I was living a liberated life and wasn't? Why did it take me so long to be able to, you know, reckon with it, to be able to even have the guts to speak about it. Here I am, somebody who's been, had a presence on the internet, has had a presence in the arts, in journalism, in, you know, music for 20 years. I mean, I've, I've, my work has been posted in one form and another for almost 20 years online since the internet started to become something that people were really using, you know, in the early, sort of around 2000, 2001, 2000, you know, so it's almost 20 years, and I thought, of course I'm liberated, I'm liberated, you know, I'm doing all these things, I'm very creative, I'm, I'm, you know, people love what I do, I love what I do, I share what I do with others, I mean, all of this was, was my thought, but I was living a very unliberated life, why, why, why? Because when I was five, my dad left me. My dad. My beautiful, beautiful, beloved dad left. And my world, which had been so safe and so secure and so full of the joys and delights of where I lived, of, the, of nature, of the flowers, of the trees, of the grass, of everything that surrounded me, of my days walking barefoot outside behind my house, you know, of going to bed at night with the stars twinkling through the window, the leaded glass window in the sky above, the oak tree swaying in the breeze, my daddy there, my daddy there, my mommy there too, she was working my daddy there. He was there a lot when I was young, a lot. He was working on his PhD, right? So he was doing a lot of that research, writing, etc., at home. And he was with me. He was with me in those early formative years. It gave me something, right? It gave me something, but he was with me. He was, he was really with me. And when I was about five just having turned six, I think. 
He left. He left. Those are circumstances I won't go into, you know, the reasons why, but he left. The daddy I loved left. And my world fell apart, okay? My world suddenly wasn't secure anymore. It wasn't alive anymore in the way it had been before. It wasn't free in the way that it was before. All of the things that happened for me and that I felt sheltered by my father's love, by his beautiful arms, by his beautiful smile and by his his love for me. And as you've heard in my podcast, dear listeners, if you've heard any of my podcasts when my father passed just over six months ago, you know that what I realized was he loved me from the very beginning. He loved me a lot. And really a lot. In, in Inherently, I don't even know how to say this, you know, I came into the world buoyed by my father's love. It was there. I was wanted. You know, a friend of mine recently said to me, he, he said to me, your name was picked with worlds of care. Your name is poetic Jessica Romisher. It's like Jessica Romisher. There's a flow to it. And he said, your name was picked with worlds of care. And that care came from my father. It came from my mother, and it came, but it came from my father. And my father loved me from those from the very beginning of conception, maybe before conception, he loved me. That was the feeling I got when I made when when he passed and he came to me in this mystical way, that's what I realized as he loved me from maybe even before conception. So when my dad left, dear listener, when I was six, my world became very, very, very insecure. And I didn't know what to do. And no one around me, my mom included, who was, you know, obviously devastated. The way it happened was was not good. Um, but she was also, you know, for her own reasons, unable to really um, stand by me herself, you know. I mean, how can a woman... It's tough. It's very, very tough. Some women can in these situations. Some women can't, you know. Um, I mean, what she ended up doing was she ended up hiring a nanny, and that nanny, in the end, saved my life. So, and and stood by me in some extraordinary ways. But you see, the fact is, and I've written about that. That's the subject of my memoir. So that's that's the 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 female side of that. You know, that's how that came through the spiritual, the loving side. But when my dad left, my world fell apart, and it would essentially. You know how now with global warming, climate change, the polar bears, they can't find sure footing on the ice anymore in the in the Arctic. They can't find, you know, those ice flows, those glaciers, those those huge tracts of ice are breaking up. And you have these pictures of them. You see these pictures of them. They can't find sure footing because suddenly what was very stable and secure and a way to get from here and there, you know, on the ice, is breaking up. 
and they don't know how to navigate that they don't know how to get from here to there they don't know you know they don't know so that's the image that comes to my mind is like these this this lone polar bear white against white standing on an ice floe not knowing how to get to the next one because climate change has created now the situation where the ice is breaking up so when I was young six my world broke up started breaking up it broke up it broke up and it was like I was standing suddenly on very shaky ground existentially emotionally psychologically in every way shape or form in every aspect of what a human life is cellularly I was standing on shaky ground because my dad left he left and he had been the one to protect me, to carry me when I was young, when I was a tiny infant with colic, he would carry me around through the night in his arms. He would carry me and just lull me to sleep because I was in discomfort. He would lull me to sleep. I was carried in his arms. And those arms around me left his arms. He left. So at that point, dear listener, I did what most kids do. I started to adapt. And what that means is different for each person. Each person's profile of adaptation is different. Each person is unique, like their fingerprints are unique. How they adapt and survive. However, the, the, cons- the constituent elements of of, of of their own way, you know, their own scheming, I say that in a good way, their own their own way to survive is unique. There's some commonalities, profound commonalities, deep, essential commonalities. But every person is a little bit different. And the way that that survival occurs will look in each person a little bit different, you know? It'll look different. So over the years, as the years unfolded, um, I um, I was adapting. You know, I was trying to survive. I was trying to create for myself the same safe haven that I had lost when I was six. And as I began to come of age, thirteen, fourteen. Um, I remember I fell in love with the handyman guy who was at that time in his 20s, okay, this is when I'm 13, 14, 13. Naturally, I mean, naturally, why not? I mean, of course, he was taking care of the house. You know, he was taking care of our house. He was really a good carpenter. He was really a good um person, you know, handyman. He was also a musician, you know. How cool is that? And uh, and that was sort of my first, you know, the beginning of my first kind of foray into the realm of what we call romance. But 
it was driven, underlying by this lack, this need for solidity. I needed solidity. I needed it. I had to, you know, I, I was, I was um, programmed to try and find it. I'm, I mean, all human beings seek existential solidity. You know, like that polar bear, he just wants to walk on solid ground, solid ice, you know. Every human seeks existential solidity, really, ultimately. And as a girl, having been left by my dad when I was six, that need ran me in ways I had no idea. So I would leave high school, I would leave the you know, this sort of, you know, familiarity of my home and that did provide me with with familiar and loving ground. I had my dear Flora, who was my nanny, and the beauty of the place around me. These things, my music, these things were sort of like pegs of a tripod, you know, kind of keeping me going. But there was something really, really lacking. And that thing is what this podcast is about. It has to do with something that no matter how much we think of ourselves as quote-unquote liberated, no matter how much my grandmother was liberated, no matter how much my mother was liberated, I still, as a girl, like all girls, I needed just a basic home feeling of place of being held, you know, of being held. So I got into any number of relationships over time, and most of those relationships were not good. You know, they were not, in the end, um, good for me. You know, they were not really good for me. But I was driven by this deeper need which had been activated, you know, which was there from the beginning just by virtue of being a human female on this, on this, in this world, right? And, but it was activated, that deep unconscious need for, for, you know, for someone to protect me um, had been activated in a very profound way by my dad leaving when I was six. I needed somebody to protect me. And, People talk about abandonment issues. Well, this is one way of describing what that means, okay? That's an abandonment issue. And women have it in spades. Why? You know, many. I'm not speaking for everybody. You know, everyone has had their own life. But I'm speaking a kind of kind of deep sort of truth about it, you know, is that we have always been vulnerable because of our physical vulnerability. And, you know, we are just by nature less strong. Okay, that's not always true. There are some incredible women, incredible women. But, you know, if you look back across the vast reaches of history and you think about the vulnerability of women across time, okay, through thick and thin, through wars, through devastations of all sorts, you know, through changes in culture, through through. Um, migrations. I mean, look at what's happening now. Look at what's happening in Mexico, you know, Central America. Look what's happening in other parts of the world, right? Africa, right? Women are really, they're vulnerable and they often suffer a lot, you know, a lot. So I am not um, discounting at all 
what men go through, that's like a topic of itself, you know, in some way. But what I'm talking about is myself, what I went through. And I'm a woman. I was born a woman in this lifetime into this body now. And I grew into a woman who was simultaneously um, gifted like my mom and my grandmother and inspired like my mom and my grandmother, you know, artistically, creatively, um, philosophically, you know, uh, in, in the arts, in academia and all of that. I was gifted and, and inspired, but I had a weak point, you know. I had a weakness, a weakness, like Achilles' heel, and that's what ended up shaping the choices that I'd make in my relationships because I needed solid, some kind of solid ground. And the choices I'd make would end up resulting in the very opposite. But it was like I was trading off, okay? So I would be making trade-offs. I, would, I wouldn't even be able to see what it was that I was amidst. I couldn't see the fact that I was really um, being ensnared, you know, being held in a sense, I'm just going to say this word, hostage, you know, um, to someone else's darkness, you know, needs, unmet needs of their own, um, um, anger, you know, you name it, you know, I was held in that awful web, right? Oh, spider's web is an interesting metaphor. It's a really good one in some cases, but I was held, I was like a bug held in that web and I wasn't aware or strong enough or able enough to extract myself to fly off until only really three years ago and I'm talking about now already being you know way on in my life so that is in a sense really what is extraordinary to me dear listener and that is why I had to make this podcast I woke up in the morning I thought oh my gosh I it, and that's still running me it's like I'm feeling that now you know for me love is very it's very very tough love like entering into another relationship for me is the idea of it is very tough I'm caught between still this this sort of you know it's just making me become aware let's say of how deep that need for security is and how that is is still running you know running me and in some ways I say this to you with a kind of smile on my face you know because it's like I'm becoming aware. It's like I just feel now, you know, I'm becoming aware. I'm becoming aware. It's like I I have this picture in my in my office which I mentioned of giraffes and palm trees and the palm trees sort of are spraying out, you know, these beautiful lush leaves out from the top. And it's like I'm looking at those leaves coming out of the top of the palm tree and I think to myself, you know, like the spray, like the beginning of those leaves coming out, I'm becoming aware of what's actually driving me. And I have to say the part of this is because of, big part of it is because of the response that I've started to get, that I'm getting from women who are listening, who listened to my previous podcast about, you know, my marriage experience and said, oh my God, you know, I went through that too. I haven't even been able to talk about it. You know, I went through that too. And women are saying that to me, you know, they're saying, stay strong, you know, go girl, go girl, you know, stay strong, you're, you're your own best friend. Can you imagine? I mean, we women have been separated from each other, right, by this. 
our need for for security, which is so understandable. People blame the victim, like, why didn't you leave? That's a ridiculous argument. It's a ridiculous way of seeing it. If we blame a woman for staying, then we have no idea what's really going on for that woman. That woman is surviving, okay? She's in a state of survival. She's not in a state, really, at the deepest level of her being, of, of um, you know, of, uh, of, of um, and yes, she's, she's experiencing violence maybe and hardship and all these things, but she is in a state of survival. She is trading her freedom for her survival, okay? She is trading all these things for her survival, and survival is at... You know, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, survival is at, is at the ground level. If you don't survive, then, you know, why talk about anything else anyway? Why talk even about domestic abuse? If you're not surviving, if you're not alive, you know, to talk about it, to, to be able to even, you know, I, I don't know if I'm being clear here, but I think you get what I'm saying. She's surviving, okay? And that's what I was doing. I was surviving because when my dad left when I was six... All of what already went into making, you know, being a girl, being a woman, difficult, was amplified enormously. And you think about all the girls, all the women in the world, and how they are inherently vulnerable. Okay, it's built into our genes, it's built into our cells. You know, our DNA carries ancestral memories, it carries, um, you know, lifetimes of memories, it carries the memories of our forebears in real ways. That's what they're actually scientifically realizing through experiments, you know, like on mice and stuff like that. So this is very real. It's not made up. It's real. It's really, really real. So when I came out, you know, and said to people, you know, for the first time really publicly, officially, and I have to tell you that interestingly, it was a couple of men in my life there behind the scenes who said you need to do this so you see it was men that created the catalytic point right moment for me because I felt in them saying it that um, I could do it you see that's not being unliberated this is the reality is I felt on an existential level, you know, one of these people is a friend that I've known for a long time, incredible man who has buoyed me, who helped save me, uh, a, just a real friend who support, has supported me through my whole journey of leaving my marriage. And the other is a newer friend whom I've known for, for years, um, really kind of knew, know him, you know, have, have re-met after, I didn't even really know him when he was, we were both children growing up in the same place, but he knew me more than I knew him. My, these, my, these men, okay, it was these men who said um, to me, you have to do this, that I did it, because I felt buoyed by the strength I got from that, and uh, and that's what that's how I, that's why I did it. That's why I had the, the guts, <laughs> you know, gave me the guts, right? For a woman, a man can give her guts, right? She's got her own guts, but, they, but, but it, can, it can give you guts to do it, you know? So I did it. I went two days ago and posted that.
that podcast about my real experience. And then getting these responses from women, I began to, it was like a secondary phenomenon, right? First was just the fear and go overcoming the fear and putting this thing out there. I remember, I'll have to tell you, listener, that I posted that on Facebook. I posted that that podcast called a safe, my safety my safe deposit box. I posted that podcast on Facebook at six thirty in the morning, my time um, here in the southern hemisphere. Uh, at six thirty in the morning, I posted it on Facebook. The responses immediately started coming in, but I was a little bit tired, so I went and lay down back in bed. And I have to tell you that I ha- an image came to me. It was an image of like a glass, you know, Christmas ornament, you know, like an orb, a a translucent glass orb that had been, without my even realizing it, surrounding me. Okay, they talk about a glass ceiling. As women, we're surrounded by glass orbs, right? Not in a good way. But I lay down in bed after posting that thing, and I had, in my mind's eye, sometimes images come to me, okay? This image came to me. It was of that glass orb exploding in a million tiny pieces from the inside out around me, out. Like, it, I didn't even realize I had been encased by a glass orb, you know, something that had been restricting me, something that had been encasing me, okay? What had been encasing me? My fear had been encasing me, my isolation, right? The trauma, all of these things had been encasing me throughout my whole life. And I achieved so much regardless, you know, that's how crazy this whole thing is. But when I posted that thing and, you know, Jesus said the truth will set you free, he was right. He was right. You know, I loved those words for a long time, but he's right. It's really real. Because when I lay down in bed and that image came to me, I thought, oh my God. It was like that glass orb that had been surrounding me, imperceptible, but containing me, exploded. I mean, picture it, dear listener, you know, it's like something out of a movie or something, you know, where it's like this thing explodes with the most unbelievable force out. And I was there, suddenly free. That's what happened after I posted that podcast in my mind's eye. In the, you know, these things are real. When these things happen, it's because there's something actually really real about them. So, oh my gosh. So then I go to the world, the state of the world, and I think about all the women. I think about the extended, the implication of what me, one person, experienced, of what each of the women who posted on my Facebook page in response to my podcast experienced and are experiencing. And then I think by extension, the millions, so we're talking billions of women, all right, on this on this earth, who are in one way or another encased, held in a glass orb, okay, who are held from each other. You see, some of these women I knew for, you know, I've known for years, and I didn't ever knew this about them. And suddenly, there's something between us now, a, 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 a sisterhood, a connection that was never there, that could never be there because of what each of us respectively, individually held secretly in the silence of our hearts. 
and now we see each other, you know, can understand each other, can feel the presence of each other, right? So by extension, I think about the billions of women on the face of this planet who in one way or another throughout their life, because this is just the way that history has gone, the human condition has gone, you know, are encased, you know, are held in some kind of glass orb, are making do in whatever possible way they can, you know. Some of them are freer than others. But look at what silence has been there, what fear has been there. I'm just one person, you know, who has, by the grace of God, been able to become aware, you know, of this, and had the means. You know, they say the pen, this friend of mine who's an amazing writer, he'll, he'd know who this, was it Daniel, Nathaniel Hawthorne? Nathaniel Hawthorne, maybe it was he, I don't know. Somebody said, the pen is mightier than the sword. What that means is the word is mightier than the sword. And I'm holding this tiny little recorder that sits in a little case on my desk. And I've begun to think that this little recorder, which is my way of recording my words, is mightier than the effing sword. Pardon my language, I don't usually use it. And I would use it even stronger, but you know what I mean. It's mightier than the sword. So, dear listener, that's what I woke up thinking and feeling and going, oh my gosh, I have to make this podcast. It's taken me almost six decades to get to this point. But thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Thank God Almighty, as Martin Luther King said, I'm free at last. It's starting. It's starting. It's not easy. I grapple with a lot. My insecurities are huge. The trauma is huge. These things are huge. They flooded my system, you know, for lifetimes. Certainly this lifetime when my dad left. That was the beginning of it in this lifetime. But there's this beautiful thing, you know, that we can begin to do, to speak. The pen is mightier than the sword. The word is mightier than the sword. It breaks the silence. Just the speaking breaks the silence. How beautiful is that? So, dear listener, that is this morning now. I head into a day and wish you the very, very best. May God bless this incredible earth that we live on in each of us. May he bless us and help us as he is to come into some kind of new world. I never understood what was needed really, you know, having always felt a passion and a vision for life and for the future. But now I'm beginning to see something really significant about what that's going to take and what it is taking for that to happen, for us to free ourselves, to change, to heal, to become active participants in our own lives and the future of this incredible, beautiful, blue planet 
as the astronauts saw it there floating in space. We're the ones. We're the ones that we've been waiting for. <laughs> All these phrases come to my mind. I'm sure you can think of some yourself. All right, dear listener, with warmest wishes now and always. God bless you now and always. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you.